You're listening to the Ship Bob Operator Series. Each week, your host, Casey Armstrong, e-com veteran, is joined by founders, operators, and insiders who are bringing along their stories and data to give you the exclusive inside scoop and tactics from those who have been there, done it, and gotten their hands dirty. You can tune in for a live recording Wednesdays. Head to operators.shipbob.com for the details. But until then, enjoy this audio replay. Hey everybody, welcome to Operators Series. This is season two. I honestly don't know the episode number, maybe eight or nine or ten. I should know these things. Episode eight. There we go, eight. I might get in trouble now. Uh, <laughs> really excited with uh, the people who we have on today. You know, some founders that are really running a, a mission driven company. And I, I can't wait for them to share their story and selfishly for, for me to be able to dive in there as well. And, <laughs> But anyways, before we get into the intros, as we always do, everybody throw in the comments where you're dialing in from. We've done close to 35 of these episodes. I've been in Southern California for all of them, except for this one. I'm actually in Chicago. That is where our headquarters are based. And so again, toss in the comments where you're calling in from. So real quick, we've got uh, Cameron and Lisa here. They are the co-founders of Our Riveter. They have, a, again, a very interesting story. So some things I didn't know about and we'll dive into is um, they, they start them as, as military spouses always on the move. Close to 60% of military spouses do not work outside the home, which was one of the driving factors for them to, to launch their brand. And so from the origin story to how they actually launched it to appearing on Shark Tank, which I always love to hear about, uh, you know, to where they're taking the brand today, I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, and then we also have Oliver over here from Shoelace. He's up in Canada. But uh, <laughs> Cameron, Lisa, welcome. And where are you, where are you calling in from? Thank you. So we're both remote. I'm in North Carolina. Yep, and I'm in Ohio for now. It's my 12th move, so who knows where I'll be next. <laughs> nice. Well, well, thank you both very much for joining us. So, you know, e- either of you can jump in first, of course. Please tell us about the origin story for the company. Yeah, so... We met as military spouses. Um, We had both recently graduated, had master's degrees, wanted to work, and found ourselves kind of in the middle of nowhere with a military move. So I met Lisa when we were both stationed in Dahlonega, Georgia, which not a lot of people know about, but it's kind of the North Georgia mountains, home of the 5th Ranger Training Battalion, and not a whole lot else. And so the two of us wanting to have something for ourselves, have something for our career, and be able to give back to our families, uh, we just couldn't find anything. And so after a lot of day drinking, working out, complaining, and um, kind of everything in between, we decided we were going to start something not just for ourselves, but for every other military spouse out there that wanted opportunity. How many times have you moved? So I've, I've moved, moved well, three yeah. times. Yeah, and she's yeah. about to move next week. So I'm her- mid-move, yes. <laughs> everything is packed. Everything's in pod. She's in an RV right now. Yeah. <laughs> her, her, her numbers are going up. But yeah, we luckily, she had an attic available for us to launch the company in. So we actually <laughs> were just two of us in an attic. Uh, we had an old sewing machine that I swear Rosie the Riveter probably used, which is our namesake, Rosie the Riveter. Um, and we're able to just launch a company with really from our credit cards. And that's really what we put into the company today. And so it's been a, a wild ride. Uh, we can kind of speak to anything from two founders starting a company in an attic to, to really all the phases of, of growing a multi-million dollar company. 
And where'd you both get your masters? I got mine up in near Canada, really, up in North Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And then uh, Cameron has a master's in architecture from SCAD. Wow. It's pretty interesting. So because I'm assuming a lot of the places you move are not necessarily like in major metropolitan areas. Are they often in kind of the outskirts? Or how would you define that? Yeah. And I think that's what leads to a lot of the issues with military spouses trying to find sustainable, you know, fulfilling employment is there are all these remote locations with military bases. And then on top of that, you're the one holding down the fort while your military spouse service member is kind of all over the country, jumping out of airplanes, deploying, doing all the other things. And so it just makes it that much more difficult to, you know, hold down a full-time job. So that's why when we started the business, we knew we wanted to be flexible and mobile so that they could work when they wanted, where they wanted. Great. And this is back in 2011 when we saw a need for a different type of work from home opportunity. You know, you're kind of a crazy thing, but the military calls you a dependent uh, spouses and children are referred to as dependents. And when I was first married, I was like, man, that's kind of a strange word. I wonder what that's about. And so then, you know, four years later and multiple moves, I really did start to feel dependent. And so that was really the catalyst behind our business model that we wanted to have a different type of work from home opportunity that you could move as many times as you needed to. You had the flexibility in your day and really creating that independence for, a, you know, the modern day woman. And so let's talk through like, what were the first, what was the first product or what were the first products? And were you creating, you know, unique or custom products for women that you knew or were you creating one, you know, hero bag that then you were trying to sell online? What did that look like? It's funny because we had the mission, all these things that we were talking about. We had all of that before we had whatever product. We didn't know what product we were going to make. We just knew we were going to provide mobile flexible income. And so when we chose handbags, we actually started with a very custom philosophy because it allowed us to grow the business with next to nothing. So like Lisa said, we started with just a little bit um, on our credit cards. And so we were we had to get really flexible on that shoestring bootstrapping budget. And we started basically you could choose your own leather liner canvas combination and we would make it for you and ship it and kind of repeat. So five bags turned into 10, 10 into 20. So the custom model really financed our business in the early days, which um, you know, like just trying to find a way to make it work one step in front of the other is really how those first phase of the business went for us. And where and how were you selling? You actually had a Shopify account within the first two days. Um, So it was easy to set up and we always have practiced the next step up when it was looked bigger than we were. And that really helped us through those, those early days. Um, And just the combination of our different skill sets with her being more creative and me more business. We always joke that she's, watercolor and on spreadsheets. Um, and that combo <laughs> just really worked out well. That is a good combo. How did you guys get your first couple of customers? Oh, friends and family and going to markets. So, yeah. you know, it was interesting. We've always had com. We've always had Shopify, but turns out, out when you turn on a website, people don't just come flooding in. And so we had to kind of figure out, you know, without something like Shoelace or without Facebook, not being an expert in that matter, we had to kind of boots on the ground, go find the people. And so we would go to these markets and we would just show up with our bags and sell uh, sell bags, give out cards and start to build up an email list and, and inadvertently kind of turn this into more of a digital process. But it was very manual at first. And, and, and those testimonials up front weren't always the best, you know, like we really helped us get to our our skill sets. Uh, we went to markets and one of the gals came up to me and she's like, I love this handbag. But 
it's not very functional when the pocket is upside down. And Cameron looks at me, <laughs> she's like, you're off sewing. So I got fired from sewing very early on in the business, but it got me back to where I needed to be, which was, you know, more of the, the business side. So. so how long, Cameron, were you the one sewing everything? And then, and then what does that look like today? Yeah. So, you know, I sewed for a couple of years after that, but we very quickly tried to scale up our team and add people because we knew we could only sell as much as we could make. And it's just kind of this very symbiotic relationship. So we grew the the team very quickly and we were able to provide that mobile flexible income. And today we have over 45 remote riveters all across the country. I think that's even gone up since we partnered with QVC this past year. And then we have almost 50 people in our Florida workshop where we put everything together in central Florida in a town club watching. Wow. That's a lot of people. So you have mm-hmm. what you call 45 riveters. They're making the bags or what, what is, what is their process? And then when does that get sent over to Florida? So we're all riveters, um, all modern day riveters carrying on the torch from the world war II Rosie riveter, but the remote riveters are individuals, their military spouses working from home, making the parts and pieces to the handbags. So they'll make anything from the liner to canvas, little leather parts. And then they ship that all to our local riveters who assemble all the handbags. So it's a, it's a long line of individuals that are plugging in at different parts of our distributed assembly line in order to make a product that really starts at all four corners of our country and then ends up with uh, our customers who, when they pick up an R-Riveter handbag, they pick up really the stories of up to 12 different women. That's fascinating. I love that because I know earlier you mentioned, you know, being able to support more military wives. And so they are the ones creating everything in advance uh, in the mm-hmm. central of Florida. Do you supply them with the material? What does that look like higher up in the supply chain for them to actually like create these and then send them over yeah, it's really controlled for them, but what they do get to control is how many they get they want to make and produce and where they're doing it. So we essentially kit everything for them, they commit to it, they finish that process and they send it back. So they can be making up from 96 parts to four kits of 96 um, in a given two-week period. Very nice. And then when somebody buys a handbag, is there something included that kind of tells the story of like how this was created? What does that look like? Yeah, so every remote riveter or every riveter along the whole process actually has a, a number. And that's actually a throwback to Rosie the Riveter timeframe. But every part that they make, they stamp with their riveter number. I am RR000. So here's my stamp right here on my desk. <laughs> um, that is because Cameron kept trying to take RR001. So I took every part that they make, they stamp with the riveter number and all the way through to quality control. You can actually go to our website and it's really like a scavenger hunt. You go through and find all your riveter numbers and you can type into the search and you can, there's blogs on almost every remote riveter and the story, how they became a remote riveter, why it's important to them. It's a, it's a really cool thing to be able to see down to the person that was part of your handbag. I love that. So I want to get into the Shark Tank stuff and some of like the, the marketing stuff and, you know, we bring Oliver on that. But before we do that, you know, you mentioned Rosie Riveter a few times. I would assume most of the people are not overly familiar with her. If you want to share a little bit on her story. You just got to, you got to do the arm. And um, then they'll remember. She, <laughs> yeah, that's right. There she we go. Or two icon on the poster. Basically, she was a huge inspiration for everything that we stood for as two women trying to stand up sort of this revolution of women in the workplace, re-identifying how we wanted to do that. And so we just thought she was like a great symbol and worthy of the name. 
I love it. And your customers, like, how would you define them? Is it, again, a lot of military wives or like, how, like, is it, I'm assuming people all over the world are buying your products. Like, what does that look like? Yeah, well, it's really, you know, we're coming up on the 4th of July weekend and it, it is the person that's believes in, in American manufacturing, believes in supporting American women. So, you know, we have a couple pillars at our Riveter and American made and supporting other women is two of those really big pillars. And so we really see our customers resonating with those things. Yeah. And let's largely that military supporter, you know, and something that's very interesting to us is you, you find that anybody you meet has some connection to the military where it's a son, a grandfather, an uncle, and something that, you know, Shoelace has really helped us start to figure out and hone is that sort of audience identification and really kind of get into you know, who is our customer and how can we communicate with them on these platforms? So, you know, because the military supporters are a very large demographic. And so something that we've worked with Julius on is how do we identify that audience and speak to them the best way. Awesome. I love it. And let's jump into that in one second. Let's talk about Shark Tank. Talk me through that. It's a wild ride. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, like one of the best things we ever did was find each other because whenever I was feeling optimistic about it, she might've been kind of like, let's maybe not dive into this, you know, what could be really good or really bad for us. But on the flip side, whenever I was like, okay, let's not do this. I regret my decision to say, let's go for it. Um, She was rooting me on, but it, it was a really cool process of, you know, even if we hadn't gotten a deal, I would do it a thousand times over because it just, it pushed us to the next level of business. We knew that we were going to prep, I'm um, going in front of the best business leaders in America. We had to have the answers. So we spent months and months prepping for Shark Tank. Um, my husband was probably the worst mock tank that Cameron and I went through. It's amazing that we're still married today. Um, but uh, yeah, he he just grilled us. But um, he he did a great job prepping us for the show. And then ultimately, it went really it went amazing. They really resonated with what we were doing and really said, you know, what you guys have done with the background that you that you started with is unbelievable. And that was probably one of the best moments of my life was being able to hear that from people that have really been able to grow something from nothing. And then be able to give us that feedback was really, truly, you know, one of those moments in life you just won't forget. Congrats on that again. That That's amazing. And I'm sure just like you said, the prep is, I think about this a lot with like writing or certain presentations. It's it's less about the output. It's the journey to create the output and like just the you know, clarity that you have and like the vision of the company, you know, like you mentioned your pillars earlier, what are you actually building and why? And, and then what does that look like moving forward? Or is just change the trajectory of the business. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think maybe I took more time to prep for Shark Tank because I had a very severe public speaking fear prior to Shark Tank. So I went through a whole lot of different trainings on public speaking and, so it's amazing what life puts in front of you and the hurdles that you need to go through, but it's really about just continuing to get through them and you never know what's on the other side of it. So just going through that process has opened us up to a lot of public speaking opportunities and I'm glad that I went through that. That's awesome. With Shark Tank, what do you think were the biggest lifts? Again, we talked about having just clarity on the business. Is it you get this one-time hit from Shark Tank and now that's like your new baseline. Was it partnering, you know, with like the sharks? Like what, what, like looking back, what are a handful of things that you think were most beneficial long-term for the company? 
I mean, I think it's a, it's a combination of multiple things, but one thing that I know for a fact that we were able to, we got into the habit of calling other companies that had been through events like this. And I will tell you, Lisa is one of those people that will call anybody on the phone, ask any question. Like she's kind of a go-getter in that way. So we were able to call companies who had been through huge events like this and say, what did you do? What, what did you have done? And so it's really the first thing that got our email list flowing. It was kind of the gift that keeps on giving. You know, we were able to set up kind of an in, inbound form and then uh, capture many, many leads that night. But it, it was the first and many of those opportunities and events where we would not have been able to execute even post-Shark Tank after that sort of effect happened without that knowledge. And so you know, I think the ability to just not be afraid to call people and ask and have that conversation. And then, you know, we were able to execute and pivot very quickly to implement that. And it's been very successful for us in the long term is one of the things that just pops into my, my head right away. Yeah. You obviously get a huge tick up of sales. You know, we doubled in one night what we did the whole entire previous year, but it was really in like 12 crazy. minutes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So that was quite an undertaking, but we also knew that we had a handmade product and that's not the traditional product that goes on Shark Tank. So we were up for a battle in itself. So our prep for Shark Tank was really communicating with our customers in such a way that they understood that they were waiting for something worth waiting for. So we had shipping windows and we sold out for six months. But what we found from that is that people, as long as they understand the background of what they're buying, they're actually more apt to want to support you because they know what they're getting. So that was a big part of our Shark Tank prep was just prepping for those selling months out. And like I said, it went out to six months. That is wild. I mean, there's the headline, you know, selling more products in 12 minutes than you sold in the prior 12 months. Like that is, Mm -hmm. that is a crazy stat. So, you know, looking through your website, you have so many different you know, variations of product, like that's a lot of complexity from like a catalog and a SKU uh, perspective and, and understanding like demand is, do some of the products you create, are they almost like order, it's like create on demand or are you storing everything so you have these these SKUs for the most part in your warehouse? Yeah, Our normal, I mean, that's the evolution yeah. of growing yeah. up, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it, it wasn't to, that way. When it wasn't that way, thing. but now yeah. Yeah, everything's too stock. You know, just in the last couple of years is where we really started to understand the planning process and ensuring that you're in stock on certain items throughout the year. And we have kind of a three-tiered chess game that we're playing, right? We've got raw materials, and then we've got parts that are ma- being made remotely. They have their own timeline because our core, like our core mission is being able to provide mobile flexible income. That's completely opposite of any manufacturing. That's not really something you say in manufacturing mm-hmm. is being able to have a section of it where individuals have the opportunity to choose how much they want to make in that time frame. So we have almost tripled the amount of riveters that we need at any one time just to make sure that they have the flexibility that they need. Um, so that's part of our manufacturing process, which does add complexity and just trying to align all those things so that when fulfillment happens, the product is there and able to go out to our customers in two to three days. Awesome. And so I have more questions there on supply chain manufacturing, but like something that you all have knocked out of the park is like that branding standpoint. And I'm sure you're always trying to like make that bigger and better, but you know, you, you know, your mission, you know, who you're supporting, not just like with your customers, but with, like you said, you have people all over the U S that you're able to provide work, you know, regardless of where they're located. 
And so you've got this brand, but then there's also the performance marketing side of the business. And so I guess help talk me through like what got you, you know, to shoelace in the first place. And then now as you're looking at data points online, how you're able to like leverage that to help track some of your sales as well. So I guess to, that's a lot in there. So I guess to start, what was the catalyst to, to jump over to shoelace and, and we can get some Oliver's insights after that on, you know, what's, what's made you guys successful there. So you're looking at the two co-founders who, as Lisa talked about, we started this thing in the garage. We were wearing every single hat. And ever since then, we've still been on sort of that shoelace, shoelace, shoestring budget. Um, not the shoelace budget, the shoestring <laughs> budget. And, you know, just trying to manage that chicken and the egg that is with growing a business while operating it and sort of building the plane while you're flying it. And so we've always had these moments where we sort of take a leap and we kind of catch up and we just one foot in front of the other. And Shoelace was the step when we realized that as a marketing team, we could not be experts in all fields and we couldn't keep, for lack of a better term, throwing all of our money at an agency and just praying that it was working. And so we actually were referred Shoelace by a colleague and it's really been able to help us refine and and bring our level of ad placement and performance to a whole nother level that we didn't have before mm-hmm. with just an internal team member that we would have to train up or, you know, spend a lot of money on that we could use for other, other items. And when we're, you know, talking about military spouses all over the country. So it's always that fine balance of where are we going to put our resources next? And shoelace has been one of those things that had, there's been so much value from mm-hmm. what we've invested in it. Yeah. And one other thing to add there is like, as a small company at all these different phases, there's always this difficulty of deciding what are we going to bring in-house and what are we going to outsource? And then beyond even that, you know, there's the most annoying thing to me is spending a lot of money creating creative and then seeing it served in all the wrong ways. Um, So we were really looking for that technology that you can't even get a human to do to understand and serve ads in the right way, in the right order to the right person. Um, and that's really where we're like, we're spending so much time, energy towards these things that we need technology in order to, to really hit it right. Mm-hmm. That's great. And, and so Oliver, before I ask some questions your way, how about you just explain to the audience, like what is Shoelace? Yeah, no, for sure. So I mean, Shoelace is, I want to call it a digital marketing solution. So we've got tech in the background that helps us as media buyers save a lot of time when we're buying media on and our main platforms being Facebook ads and Google ads. We don't work with just anyone. We primarily work with DTC e-commerce companies. So people that are on Shopify, right? 90% of our clients are on Shopify. And I think like, at least in our in, in our sales funnel, and what's great about Lisa and Cameron, like, they've got a great story. They've got a great product. We just like working with each other. And I think that's something that we talked about in our last call together, actually, was just like this vibe and energy that we get, right? And we we're here for a long-term relationship. Isn't it just about like spending some money on ads and getting revenue for both of us really quickly? It's like, you know what, where are we right now? Like, what creatives do we have right now? And where do we want to get? And how do we spend that money accordingly? So, that's really where we come into play, right? Like, filling in that gap of knowledge of media buying, of like, they've got these great creatives, these great products, but how do we take this money and use that as efficiently as possible? And that's where we kind of come into play. Were they using Facebook and Instagram ads prior to moving over to Shoelace, or did they start with you? So if you, you guys can talk about your prior experience with Facebook ads, if you want. Yeah, we were on Facebook and Google. Um, we had done less Instagram, but we were 
really using Facebook as a shotgun. Like we were just trying to, like Lisa said, serve our best creative to everybody. You know, like we really needed the sophistication that Shoelace was going to bring to us because then we were looking at retargeting in a, whole, in a whole different way. We were looking at prospecting in a whole different way. And so we were spending the dollars on Facebook and Instagram, but we, we weren't doing it. And I don't think the smartest yeah. way. I mean, I love platforms. Like every time I'm like, oh, I'm on this new platform, my whole team's like, oh God, what are we doing now? <laughs> like, but I just love the excitement of new updates. I'm the first one to yeah. update the beta version, you know, because like who knows what update they came up with. It's so exciting. Um, and we were doing the same thing with vendors. And, you know, like it just got to the point where we needed to find a company, a vendor that worked for us long term. And so, you know, that's where Shoelace came in and we've been really happy. And so Oliver, you inherit this this brand that has an amazing brand, an amazing story, a pretty, you know, they've got historical data on who their customers are over time. They've got a pretty good understanding of who their their target customers are. There's some Facebook data in there, whether it was good or bad. Some in there. <laughs> Where do you start first? Because you have so much to work with and then start to expand from. I think where we always start off, and we always say this to anyone that we work with, that the co-founders, the founders, and the people that own the business will always be the experts of their vertical or of their industry. Like We're not going to come in and tell them we know what their customers want or what copy is going to work. Yes, there's a ton of generic e-commerce copy or e-commerce plays that you can apply to a bunch of different e-commerce brands. But like that's where we need to start first of like what are you trying to accomplish with paid media? Right. Yes, there's the performance aspect. Yes, we need to be efficient with our ad spend. Yes, we need to get solid return on ad spend. Right. But how do you want to be positioned in the industry? How do you want to talk to your clients? Do you want to be sales driven? Do you want to use copy like that? Right. So even just like outside all of the ad play, like tell us your story. Like I've heard this story before. Right. We've had this exact same conversation of like, what is your journey? And then taking a look at what the customer journey, and you'll hear everyone at Shirley talk about that a lot. Like, what is your customer journey from starting? Start to finish, and how do you want the advertisement play to kind of align with that customer journey? What does your advertisement look like to someone that's never experienced your brand versus the advertisement to someone that has bought several of your products? Do you want them seeing the same thing? Most of the time, you don't, right? You want to be talking to them in the right way. You've had experience with our brand. Let us talk to you in the right way that is appropriate to where you are as a customer. So that's where we start. And then, when the technical side of things, obviously taking a look at all the historical data of like what worked, what didn't work. Hey, we can make some optimizations here. We can restructure here. You guys weren't excluding these audiences. This targeting was off. We can introduce some other ads here, more of these types of ads. And then we we work with over 400 stores. So we have a lot of data ourselves of like, you know what, like single image ads are working really well. You know, those types of little insights that we go in and then we test within a brand new account as we're optimizing it, right? I always talk about like, we don't have a secret sauce at Shoelace. No one does. No agency, no media buyer has a secret sauce. But what we do and what we always be transparent about is that we're constantly testing and we're constantly trying new things. Here's what's worked. Here's what didn't work. And here's the new thing that we're testing based off of what we're seeing across the board. Awesome. And I see Tim in the comments saying, uh, they've considered you all for about 18 months and have had no success with Facebook and Instagram. So Oliver, maybe you should throw your email in the chat and get <laughs> some people heading your way. He's from so Boise. Talk to him. I said it even right. My husband's from Boise and I always want to say Boise. <laughs> <laughs> so I know there are no silver bullets in business and in marketing and in sales. Everybody's always searching for it and it just 
does not exist, but you know, it doesn't need to be for, for our Riveter per se, but you know, you've seen so many accounts. What do you see if, if you had to pick one thing, what is the most common mistake that brands make when they're, when they're trying to sell on Facebook and Instagram? I think for Facebook and Instagram, their first mistake is thinking that they can just do it themselves. Like Facebook and Instagram does do a good job of being like, hey, just spend a thousand dollars and you'll get a bunch of metrics back. And everyone's really excited when they first boost a post, like, oh, I got 10,000 impressions on this thing, right? And that's the first mistake they make is falling in love with those vanity metrics because it's like, well, how many of those impressions or clicks actually turned into a sale? And you're like, I don't know. So tracking is not set up properly. Attribution is not set up properly. And it's just like this big shotgun approach of like, I've thrown $100,000 at Facebook, but I'm not actually sure how much the return on investment is specifically. I just know sales went up. So I keep spending money, right? Then you end up with a platform that's hard to scale and hard to justify. That's great advice. And it's something that I... A mistake I've made in the past and, and something I always think that I try to focus on now is like, you got to make sure the infrastructure and the bones are in place first or else every dollar you spend you need you need that feedback loop and like the yes. right feedback loop or else you don't know what to optimize you don't know what the ROI is with some of the facebook changes that's happening with apple i know we talked about this you know a little over a month ago and a lot's transpired since mm-hmm. what what is the impact that you're seeing you know maybe even with our river or or across a handful of the brands that you work with it, have things kind of i know that people are seeing CPMs, which is a vanity metric, but it's still a data point. Like it is a data point. CPMs so, yeah. like increase exponentially. Are things starting to get back to more normal, or like what are you seeing out there today? I don't think things are getting back to normal. I should start there. Like definitely not going back to normal or whatever normal was before. Well, We're well, gonna... Sorry to interrupt. Do you think that's because of the changes that Apple's made, or is that from the continued influx of competition across the board? And, and maybe there's not as much. Like the supply of the impressions is not growing at the same rate as like the demand for the impressions. I think we're just like in a really weird spot considering we're like exiting the pandemic, right? So as everyone just stayed at home, e-commerce took a huge spike because they couldn't shop anywhere else. And now that turned into a lot of people forced to do e-commerce that weren't in play before. So the increase in competition last year and then the past year has skyrocketed, right? And now everyone's like, oh my gosh, I need to be on e-commerce. Everyone's talking to their colleagues like, hey, this is super successful for us right now, right? So everyone's dropping on this train. It's like, how do you be successful on e-commerce? You need to take a look at paid media. Right, performance marketing through Facebook and on Google. Right. So, yes, as you said, there's a ton more competition in this space. Right. But now we're entering this part with the data privacy and there's a loss of data on the platform. And how do you continue to be successful on this platform where you were before when all of your metrics aren't looking so hot because all of the data points that they had may not exist anymore? So, that is the conversation that we're currently having. I don't know why, personally, why impressions may have gone up. I have a bunch of ideas as we talked about competition in the space, a lot of changes on Facebook side of things in terms of how they're serving ads. On Facebook side, more technical stuff, I know they're trying to figure out how to get attribution back. They're trying to get how to get more data back into their system. And they're going to figure it out. From the client side of things, just because your Facebook metrics are down, did your sales also go down? That's the relationship that we're trying to kind of create and continue to have that conversation about. Before Facebook and the normal, it was very one-to-one, right? You spent $100, you got your 3x return on ad spend, and you were confident in that attribution. And now you're seeing maybe half of that, 
1.5x. And it's like, wait, this isn't our KPI. We can't be efficient with this. We can't scale like this. But then when you take a look at your Shopify results, they're up. And you're like, wait a second, what is going on? So understanding that relationship, trying to fit in all the different gaps is kind of where we're at right now within the, the media buying space. Awesome. Well, I want to get back into to Facebook and Instagram more in a little bit. We do have a question mm. from Novena. I'm going to mispronounce something in here though, but her question was, do you think a brand created managed from an island like, I don't know how do you pronounce it, Mauritius, Mauritius, uh, far, basically far from the US and Europe can position itself as a global e-commerce brand. So I guess before we hand that off to Oliver, Novena, if you don't mind expanding on that, where are your current customers and where are your target customers? And I think we can dive into that in a second. So Cameron and Lisa, outside of Facebook and Instagram, how are you all driving a lot of the, the demand, again, outside of those channels? You know, we actually have a flagship store. When I moved, when I made my first move after starting our router from Georgia to North Carolina, we started retail kind of on accident where we basically got kicked out of the garage. My husband was like, give me back my garage, please. And so go fly and build your brand. And so we had, we opened up a retail store because we wanted somewhere to be able to make the bags. And we thought, why not open the door and let people see them? And so we've seen this halo effect happening from our retail stores. We've also done several long-term pop-up collaborations with a couple of different places. Lisa did a long-term pop-up in Columbus, Ohio. And that really helps that brand awareness, that customer acquisition. And then you see that digital halo effect happen, you know, within the region that you open up your retail doors. Now, of course, during COVID or during a pandemic, very difficult to maintain that, to maintain that sales channel. But for us, it was worth it to maintain our flagship store. And then, you know, we're, we're looking to take on big partners like QVC to help us get to the next level from a production standpoint and a customer acquisition. Yeah. It might sound archaic, but a lot of our marketing is still word of mouth. You know, like one of the things that we always talk about is that our handbags are a conversation starter. Um, people are proud to carry them. And when you see two women that are both carrying an Irvitor bag cross paths with each other, it's like this little island where they're both on. And it's like, you and I have the same values. You and I believe in the same thing. And it's really cool to see. Um, and where everybody's looking down at their cell phones nowadays, it's really nice to be able to have something that you can talk about. And that's carrying our Irvitor handbag. You know, you can tell the whole story about how individuals really hopes and dreams went into a job opportunity. So I think a lot of our growth has come from that as well. That's amazing. And yeah, it's interesting where yeah, I'm sure your employees or you know, the people creating the parts around are obviously helping spread it from like a word of mouth perspective. And, and they're surrounded by a lot of your target customers right. as well. Yeah. As military spouses, you know, like the last thing that most of them want to do is start their own business. Because if you're in real estate, if you're in a lot of local type of businesses, you don't want to move. It will in it will inhibit your business's growth. And so one of the first things Cameron and I said is, how do we create a business model that actually grows because of these moves? It was just, we couldn't be afraid to just go for it. And so what we've seen is not only have our moves helped us, um, I moved to Columbus, Ohio, which is like the second mecca of retail next to New York. You know, that helped us grow. Um, Every time a riveter moves, that helps us grow. So it's really looking at the problem and trying to find a solution for it. You'll have like one of the arguably the most inspiring story I've heard for you know people creating a brand. So honestly, I'm so impressed with your flagship store and physical retail. What did that look like, and how did you navigate that during COVID, where a lot of some states were extremely locked down? And then how do you see that evolving, you know, this year and beyond? 
Yeah, I, we went into hibernation. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there was no for for a short period of time there. We tried to do the local pickups and, you know, the deliveries and stuff like that. But we basically just said, OK, well, we're going to let our team go home and take care of their families. We let the e-commerce bubble, if you will, kind of take over and cover down on the cost of our flagship store. And it has since opened after, you know, everything has died down a little bit and we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And we've seen, you know, people out and about and it's back up and running. But there was a period of time there. We, we didn't know how long we were going to have to try to cover it. But, you know, community is everything to us. It's a, it's a huge part of our brand. And so keeping that flagship store up and running or ready to be up and running was important. Yeah, we uh, really switched to just being community driven. So our two local areas, we had a pop up and then North Carolina we really flipped over to how can we support the local communities during this pandemic and then national too. We already had a network of deployed remote manufacturers, right? So we said, how can we actually Cuban emailed me like almost immediately and said, Hey, you guys, can you switch to making personal protection, whether it be gowns or masks? So we deployed one of the largest national networks of volunteers to make PPE for the national shortage. Um, so that was really, you know, how we were able to donate to our local areas. So although we were shutting down on a, on a retail standpoint, you know, we were still trying to take those local communities and support as best as we could. That's awesome. And then what, what about like this year, you know, things are opening up a little bit more. Do you plan on maintaining where you are from a retail standpoint, or do you think that you'll continue to double down on physical retail? Our flagship store is up and running again. So we're just, we're really thankful for that. Uh, we're starting to see people come out. We're starting to see people want to be, you know, in more public spaces and want that connectivity again. Yeah. So we will probably, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm out of the house kind of thing. So we'll probably take a tactical pause on any retail growth and maintain where we are and see how, um, mm -hmm. see how the year plays out. What we have really grown and have more plans to do is pop up. So the opportunity to take a a spot that's going to be there temporarily and then we love interactions that the customer is able to really do something custom so we have little key fob activations where they can make a custom key fob um so those things where they're temporary pop-ups are a big part of our our growth and future plans and with the temporary pop-ups like for example i live just north of san diego and i know there's a huge military presence you know in san diego especially with pendleton like, how do you identify the locations? Is it gut instinct? Is it from talking to, you know, your riveters? Is it from looking in your, you know, Shopify, like end consumer locations? How do you pick and choose where you're going to do your pop-ups? It's usually driven by the collaborator. So if, if a, a larger store reaches out and says, hey, we'd like to do a, a pop-up within us, that's it's usually driven by who is collaborating with us on the pop-up. And then we kind of look at the area and determine if it's a, if it's aligned with our target market. And then with QVC, how did that come to fruition? You know, if you would have asked us a couple of years ago, if we if we would have ever a been able to go on QVC and and just have that activity and that skill set, I would have told you, no, I I can't do that. I'm not I'm not skilled enough to do that. But you know, it's a really interesting platform because you really get up and you're able to tell your entire brand story and talk about your product at like no other platform that I've ever seen. And so yeah. um, it's a, just a really cool collaboration of storytelling and product selling that we've not experienced anywhere else. But it was a Cuban, basically we were introduced um, to the platform by Mark. 
How many times have you done it? Oh, man, we're like going on like 15 or so like airings. At, yeah. That's amazing. We have lots of little ones and then we've got these big events like we're going to be doing on this upcoming Friday uh, that's like all day long. Yeah. And it was interesting for us as, you know, founders that are very mission driven, you know, we were never the individual that was other than those little markets, the ones that were like out there selling or like talking about features of the handbag. So it was a really eye-opening experience for us because we, you know, we're not just telling a story. We're really like telling about the features of our handbag. And now being able to go through both of those, not only just the features, but also the storyline has been actually a, a really cool growth for Cameron and I both. And with the bigger events, like I'm assuming, you know, you fortunately you're timing it well with QVC with the 4th of July weekend. With the bigger events, how long are you on camera? They can be anywhere from like an, you can do an hour show or they might be like a seven minute spot. Several times throughout the day, basically starting at 12.01 a.m. to like 11.30 that night. Mm-hmm. How tiring are they? <laughs> You're kind of just running on the adrenaline, you know? Yeah, like a marathon, yeah. <laughs> like, we, we want to go back to the studio because, <laughs> like, you know, you, you get the special treatment with hair and makeup. Now we have to do it ourselves, which is really kind of rough. But <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you'll get to go back to the studio soon? I mean, I would, I would assume so, but I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know what their, yeah, I'm not sure what their long-term plans are. I think that it's also a really cool organic thing to be able to see. Like, we're actually filming directly from our uh, flagship store. So it just, it makes it a really unique experience as well. So we're kind of with yeah. either direction. So I know one of the big issues that a lot of directing consumer brands uh, or just anybody who sells anything is struggling with this year is, is just the broader supply chain from access to raw materials, to the cost of raw materials, to shipping them, especially internationally. From a raw material standpoint, are you primarily buying here within the U.S. and or do you buy globally? And and how does that impact the business? Yeah, we're we're globally sourced materials. Um, there's some things in handbags that you literally can't buy in America, which is really frustrating. But yes, it was you know with our manufacturing and assembly all happening here in the United States, we were really lucky during last year. We were actually going into our largest capacity ever right during the pandemic, which was uh, really interesting and and definitely had all hands on deck trying to figure out how we can navigate that. But we were really fortunate to have our manufacturer assembly here in America um, happening down in Florida. And so we were able to keep our doors open and kind of push through that. Are you seeing much of a an issue both on costs and, and time delay to get the raw materials still today or has some of that dissipated? Cost is still, you know, continuously going up. Um, cost of leather is just like through the roof. But as far as supply chain, you know, we've been really fortunate to have vendors that, that understand what our lead times are and, and we haven't had too much of a, a problem getting the materials. But yes, pricing is just inflation. It's just crazy. And how do you manage, you know, this global network of suppliers is it through software is it through excel is it one of you all that has to tackle this every day like how do you how do you approach that um in the early days it was excel um a little stickers that we'd print out <laughs> yeah we've uh, grown up and we actually use like a manufacturing software that connects to all of our platforms you know for shopify for sales orders all the way through to you know quickbooks that we use for our financials one thing that we've always done is, you know, have the right tools for the job and never really skimped on that because that is what will throw your business for a loop 
and um, you won't be able to recover from it. Yeah, I almost think it's it's a lot of that technology in the background, kind of making sure that you don't drop any of the little details. And then that team member who's got eyes on everything can make the phone calls. And we, we've got an incredible team behind the scenes making everything happen um, and making sure none of those balls get dropped or, you know, a thousand to 10,000 yards of canvas doesn't get stuck in a port in India, you know, while that sh- the country is shutting down. So we definitely had our scary moments, but a lot like shoelace, it's just, it's the technology and the people aspect, and you've got to have both. So you mentioned technology, you know, you, you mentioned Shopify a few times, you've mentioned shoelace. What are some of the other must-haves that you utilize in your e-commerce technology stack? We're on Klaviyo for email. We just picked up an SMS. Unfortunately, Klaviyo came out with their SMS option like right after we uh, went with a different company, but we just started SMS to see if we can't grow that that database of first-party leads as email is getting more and more difficult to get through. So SMS, Klaviyo for email. Yapo. Yeah, Yapo reviews are yeah. huge. Like I said, I love to switch platforms. So <laughs> like we'll go and come back. You know, like if, if we've come back, you know that it's it's winning. And Clavio, we went to one and came back and they, they've been awesome. We use Fishbowl for a manufacturing system. It's like a manufacturing ERP system. ERP. Yeah. That's great. And and so I, I have a question for for any of you. So a question from Duncan here who's who's calling in from Prince Edward uh, County in Ontario. He's wondering, and I might slightly modify the the question, but it says, wondering how have you been using digital to amplify word of mouth and replicate the in-person dynamic with the conversations with the markets, et cetera? So I guess the way I'll reframe it to an extent is, or you can answer directly, is with word of mouth or maybe with your average customers, how, if at all, have you used um, user-generated content to help amplify the brand, both from a branding and a performance marketing perspective. Oh man, user-generated content and all of our Yapo reviews feed directly into all of our shoelace retargeting and prospecting. So not only are we getting the right ads in front of the right people, but they're seeing exactly what our customers are saying about our product, which is huge. And then I think the other aspect of that is, you know, when you're talking about those in person, you know, a handbag is a very tactical, like you want to kind of feel it and experience it and talk about it. And we're, you know, we've got a team that's great about talking about our, our brand. So to me, one of the biggest challenges is when you go to those events, how are you getting those first party leads without saying like, hey, would you put your name and email on this list for me? You know, like, how can we get more creative about that sort of customer acquisition? And so being creative about the text message and, you know, kind of getting that lead and what are you giving that person? What's the value that you're providing by by having that exchange and getting creative with that is the meat of that, I think. Uh, so, so, so I have a question that's you know more more specific and unique to your product. So I have a, an older car, which I love, and I know that it's going to like last me forever. You know, it's like a, it's a, an old Land Cruiser and I throw my kids in. I know they can destroy it, but that thing's going to keep trucking. But every time I get into like a friend's new car, you get that like new leather smell. And like, I never really have a desire to buy a new car until I step into that. And you know, the, the <laughs> punches you in the face with, with your product. It's, it's similar where you're selling a lot of these things online, but you know, there's that, that, that's, it's not only like you think of like the sensory uh, methods of selling, it's not just like touching the leather, but it's the smell as well. And so I don't know, is there anything you've been able to do to try to like tap into to that sense when you, when again, you're selling online? 
That's a great question. I mean, I don't know if you'll ever be able to completely replicate the in, in-store experience, but, you know, great photography, great video, you know, having all of those items on those product pages. So when I'm looking at, you know, the auto, which is our bestseller on com, I'm seeing what everybody's saying about it, how they're using it, what you can fit in it. You know, I think that there are so many platforms out there that do that very well and that are very integrated on the, on those, you know, the e-commerce web. I think our biggest problem actually has been too much to talk about, right? So like, <laughs> um, you know, it's taken us what, you know, like almost 50 minutes here to even tell like really the whole in and out of our Riveter. And then we don't even get to the fact that we use the highest quality leather for our products and the five senses that go into that, you know, like from the smell to how long it lasts and how it gets better with age and how you can use leather, you know, solve to make, like bring it to new life. Uh, we don't even get to that. Um, and then not only that, but like just the emotion of our product, you know, from military attachment or to being able to be a working mom and not being able to have to choose the difference between having a family or having an income for yourself. You know, like those are the things that you remember and you want to be able to share with other people so that they can have those experiences too. Um, and that to me has been our most difficult part. You know, you mentioned, yeah, we have been talking for almost an hour now and, and you probably barely scratch the surface and everything that goes into the business, but I, I really appreciate you all taking the time. I want, I want to close it up with a question that I always close these with Oliver, start with you and, and then we'll go to uh, you, Cameron and Lisa to, to finish us um, here. So Oliver, you mentioned, you know, things, especially from a more tactical perspective with shoelace, you know, making sure that you've got your infrastructure in place before you even start doing the spend. But what would you say is your number one piece of advice for e-commerce entrepreneurs today? Be open-minded. Don't assume when you're going into a platform, whether it's going to be successful or not. I think everyone right now is going omni-channel. People are starting to realize like maybe TikTok actually could be a viable platform for us. I just think that's only like 16-year-old girls, but that's wrong, right? So be open-minded, try out multiple of different platforms, and then uh, really work with your consultant or media buying agencies who have that transparency and really understand the numbers that are being pushed out, right? That would awesome. be my number one advice for entrepreneurs is educate yourself and work with someone that you trust and are confident with. Awesome. I love that. And yes, I'm not a 16-year-old girl and TikTok is the most addictive app ever that I need to force myself to open. Um <laughs> So, Cameron, let's, let's jump over to you. What's your, what's your number one piece of advice for entrepreneurs today? Keep it as simple as you can. It's very complicated. I feel like very overwhelming atmosphere when you get into e-commerce. You've got all of these platforms. You've got all of these metrics. And ultimately, you're trying to pitch yourself to new customers and deliver with a great product. So, I would say don't get overwhelmed by all of the options. And then you've got to find those partners, like Oliver was saying that can be your experts and your right hand because you're not going to know, you're not going to know it all. Yeah. I love that. Focus. Focus is so important and you can't do everything overnight. It, it takes, it takes a very long time. And Lisa, what about you? You get to bring us home today. All right. Um, my advice at the very beginning is don't say no when you're growing a business. Um, it was the advice that someone gave me, which ultimately pushed me and Cameron into going on Shark Tank is, you know, like you, you got to do things that make you uncomfortable. Otherwise, you know, you're just sitting still. So take every little opportunity that you can. You never know what comes of it. Cameron did a random little market one time and it ended up being, you know, like a, a great opportunity to meet a anchor for a TV show. So you just never know what comes of, of the little things too. Yes. Throw yourself out there. That's great. Well, well, thank you all again. This is, 
you have such an inspiring story and I'm glad to hear your success and that you actually met each other, like you said, and then just being able to support so many people as well, you know, as you, uh, as you grow the brand. So I'll be, I'll be watching and cheering from afar. Really appreciate you, you all taking the time to join us today. We'll be on next week at the same time as always. But again, thank you so much to everybody for that logged in and, and then Cameron and Lisa for you sharing your story and uh, best of luck with everything. Yes. Thank you. Thank you Stacey. Appreciate it. Take care.